It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Chris, have you ever climbed a route called Snake Dike on Half Dome? No, I have not. Are you aware of this rock climb? Yes, very. Um, it's famous. It's a famous climb. I haven't climbed it either. Uh, we're talking about it today due to just unfortunate circumstances, sadly. But yeah, it's like a classic 5.7 slab route. So kind of like the easiest real rock climb to the summit of half dome. If you don't count the cables Mm -hmm. route on the East face. And the reason we're talking about it is that there was just like this really terrible fall. This 21 year old woman from New Zealand, uh, was climbing it with her partner. Sounds like she was relatively inexperienced, but, um, she took a 80 foot fall on one of the crux pitches of the route. So my understanding about snake dike is that, it um, was a relatively run out climb for being five seven. Is that your understanding? Yeah, it's always been, you know, you have to. It's an old route, so super minimal bolting. Um, a lot of it is cruiser, and from what I understand, you know, the the cruxes have a bolt or some sort of protection relatively close, but there's a lot of just really run out moderate slab climbing. 30, 40 feet between protection or between anchors and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that was my understanding too. It sounds like this woman was leading one of the five, seven pitches. She clipped the one bolt in the middle of the pitch, climbed the 40 foot run out to where the anchor was, but she didn't see the anchor and she kept climbing above it you know, five or 10 feet and then realized that she had climbed above the anchor and started trying to down climb and slipped and fell 80 feet. And she's wearing a helmet, which got completely demolished and probably saved her life. But other than having her life saved, she apparently broke every bone in her body, broke her foot so bad that it had to be amputated and uh, is alive, but in obviously really, really bad shape. So we are sorry to hear that. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, the the idea of taking an 80-foot fall down a slab like that is just terrifying. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I also read the articles around it, you know, saying that she was in sort of good spirits and sort of fighting spirit, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a terrible story and it's, it's, you know, something I empathize with. I've been in climbing a long time and have heard a lot of these stories and some have resulted in death and other, other big accidents. So it's and never amputation easy. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's really, really awful. And, um, so our, our hearts go out to this woman, um, but we, we're not going to talk about her accident per se. We're going to more talk about the meta issue at hand, which has kind of been percolating up in the wake of this accident, as um, as these issues often do. I thought we could talk about just this idea of, you know, revisiting whether a route like Snake Dyke is appropriately equipped for, you know, today's modern sensibilities in climbing. Does this accident change 
our intuitions about how we bolt roots and whether we retro bolt old roots. And so that's kind of the topic of the show today with um, all that throat clearing out of the way mm-hmm. and well wishes and all of that. I think that it's right into like a hot spot of this issue because this root is extremely historic. It's very old and it's of a grade which it shouldn't necessarily be, but you know, we just know that a lot of times these the easier grades get less protection put in them. And the sticking point is probably more the historical nature of this climb. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't I, I don't have like a I'm I'm not too strident on this one. Um I both feel a little bit of that pull of history. Um I feel also that the inexperience or the naivete maybe played into because, you know, I've never done Snake Dyke, but I know that it's, you know, has this reputation. It, I think it's pretty well known. It said something in, in one article about they having like a very sketchy topo or a mm. guidebook that didn't describe it very well. I guess that issue is, is like, do we do everything in our power to protect people from making really bad errors like they did you know she blew past the she blew blew past the um the anchor and then there's also some conjecture that she was off route so it kind of got lost because of of missing that sort of signpost Mm -hmm. um and how far do we go to kind of sanitize everything and make make it all safe you know even the show we discussed about that avalanche on the marmalada you know i read a piece by you know friend of the show Herr Messner where you know he, he he expressed his condolences as well but he also said like you go into the mountains and there are things that can happen that can kill you it's part of why we go into the mountains and it's part of why we climb and so I do have a little bit of ambivalence about that kind of sanitation of like the risk mm-hmm. and allowing some room for judgment and you know do you know what i mean yeah you know so you know let me try to let me try to set up that tension and you can respond so yeah like you i'm kind of of two minds of this and a little bit ambivalent about it in general but the one on the one hand there is this argument that climbing should be safer and that climbing routes should be as safe as possible. And what is the harm in adding enough bolts in order to ensure that, um, you know, that, that a route is appropriately equipped for the, the level and of the climber. So if it's a five, seven, a five, seven climber should be able to enjoy a five, seven, like that seems like a logical conclusion. On the other hand, there's an argument that, all of the things that we value in climbing from skills that go beyond what the grade of the route is from route finding to the mental experience of being able to handle runouts to being able to rescue yourself from a bad situation, which could include a skill like down climbing to, uh, you know, just being able to deal with all of the random and unforeseen things that happen on an adventure like a rock climb is supposed to be is all part of the experience that's built into it. And that people should come to this sport with a very sober understanding of what it is that they're doing and getting themselves into. 
and without the the attempts to mitigate that those elements of um, climbing are essentially attempts to change the nature of the sport in a way that would be widely agreed to be detrimental to this experience that we all like or parts of this experience that we sometimes enjoy. And I can see those two arguments in really in in really clear ways that makes me sympathetic to both of those arguments. Certainly, you know, in my kind of like younger and, you know, more brash and maybe more inebriated states, I might be the guy who's advocating for the latter where this is a sport for elitists and you need to understand the elitist nature of the game if you want to play and those who don't steal themselves for the possibilities of the consequences are just simply, you know, too bad for them. But then you read stories like this and you see the face of this, you know, young woman who's just had her life like ruined um, on some level. And you can't help but feel totally sympathetic to the other side of that argument where what is the big deal about adding a reasonable amount of bolts so that you don't have to, you could clip, you know, let's say four bolts over a pitch length instead of just one. And I don't know, you you can extrapolate all the other possibilities for what it would take to make snake dike a snake dike, a safer outing for a five, seven liter. So yeah, I've laid out those two positions. You feel like that's the, have I, have I done justice to the, what the argument is or the, the, the constraints of this debate? That's it in a nutshell. And the reason it's hard for me to like get my hackles up also has to do with age, I think, because I certainly would have at a younger younger age and being a trad climber primarily before I was a sport climber. But it and it and at this point I, I like literally think through the whole thing and I'm like, would I care if, you know, suddenly there was six or seven bolts per pitch on the snake dike. No, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't care at all. Like, I would be like, oh, okay, well, that one's that one's good to go now, you know? And I don't really get too worried about the, the slippery slope argument, which is, is fundamental to the one side as well, mm-hmm. is that, you know, if we do it there, we, we do it everywhere. And right. that's truly like the sanitizing of of the sport. Like it's all going to be grid bolted. We've we've heard that that boogeyman many many times. And you know, I guess over time they could be right. And and I think that 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 side of the argument does feel like we have to draw this line in the sand. And I think to be honest with you, like Snake Dyke is a is is fits all the all the the characteristics to be the line in the sand. Right. Because of its historic value. And most people with a little bit of knowledge understand what they're getting into on a route like that. And this is part of this this accident was was again the inexperience of the crew and that they were new to the place. They had just like dipped into Yosemite barely. I think this was the second route they'd done there. Do I mean that's just the thing is do we put up guardrails against everything? Mm-hmm. You know, because mistakes were made, you know beyond just the fact that there's only one bolt and can you put up guardrails and mitigate for everything and that that is also still part of the argument like you know you put in four bolts and someone gets off route and they fall and they still fuck themselves up you know you put in five bolts 
so I get it. Like I get it all. But but like I said, at the same time, I I just like I'm not gonna worry about it if if the community. I don't know who that would be in a place like Yosemite. Said, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna fix this problem. Um, we're going to put in more bolts and go up there and and look around for where the mistakes can be made and make sure that there's protection there and you know whatever I guess you could do. But that's that's the problem as you start talking about it. And you're like, well, what do you do to to alleviate this problem? This woman had." You know, do you spray paint the anchor orange? Right. Like that would have probably helped. Right. Do you know what I mean? If she, because I'm sure it blends in. It's a big sea of white granite with some, some, you know, slightly dimmed out metal that just blends right in. I've, I've, I've seen it. I've seen bolt hangers right in front of my face disappear into that granite. So yeah. honestly, like putting a big orange circle around it would certainly have helped that situation. Well, there's certainly another, you're kind of alluding to this other card that's in the mix, which is the, just the relationship between climbers adding bolts to places where bolting isn't necessarily or increasingly looked down upon. Um, and we can table that for maybe later in the conversation, but the, um, the thing that I think that you're getting at is that, well, it's, it's helpful to like, look at the slippery slope arguments because the more we get pushed to edge cases, we can kind of define where those lines in the sand are. And so there certainly is a climb where I would imagine you would get your hackles up about, regardless of what the situation was, mm. someone fucked themselves up horribly and got mangled, but you would still be vociferously, you know, advocating for keeping the climb as it's as it was in, in history. I don't know if the backer Yarian is, is, is there it is. Is been evoked. <laughs> Drink we'll everyone. A little ding. A little ding. <laughs> um, actually, you know, what's funny is I don't, that's the funny thing is I really like searching my soul. I don't give a fuck about any of that. Anymore. Well, let's, let's, ima- <laughs> let's imagine like a count, like a, a universe where, um, snake dyke was, an early climb for you and that you were really proud of doing as a young climber and you overcame those, uh, run outs. And that was like a meaningful experience for you. And it allowed you to go on to do many great things in climbing over the next 20 years. I would imagine that there's a lot of people for whom that's true. And to deny or to negate those experiences as, as being sort of not worth preserving or, and to deny all future parties from having those kinds of experiences is also a consideration, I think. Yeah. And so a lot of this stuff, like, you know, in the wake of these like real tragedies, we kind of like, well, I don't give a fuck about snake dyke. Like, let's just add some bolts. Like, we don't want this to happen again. Clearly like this shouldn't happen. And it's easy to kind of fall back on, being apathetic because you don't actually care. You you can't be forced to think too hard about where your line in the sand is. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm like, I don't want to be sloppy about that. I want, I, I, I like thinking about where those lines are and I like trying to challenge myself to come up with what the argument is for preserving a route or changing it. I mean, it's all such this evolution in my thinking and, and again, like what my emotional stakes are in the sport, I think have changed a lot and, and it, I, it, I, it still is stuck in youth and, 
and and whether I'm just have the capacity to like get upset about these philosophical things that all right well channel, don't really channel your me, but, youth right now what right. what would 20 year old chris say in this moment oh, where, no fucking where i'm in way camp for more bolts in that thing why would you say like what would the 20 year old chris argue what, this, what would yeah the, the same thing we were arguing is that like it's historic you can't you can't put up bumpers for everybody you know and in, in, in some ways, it actually wasn't even the nature of the route that caused this to happen. If you want to drill down on it, um, you know, she blew it. Yeah. And, and again, like accidents happen. Accidents happen. And, you know, it wasn't actually like directly involved with how the route is set up. Mm-hmm. Because if she'd have stopped and then fallen in the same spot on while leading the next pitch, she would have fallen 20 feet. Well, she t- yeah, right. she technically did the run out as it was meant to be done. She climbed right. to the anchor. She right. just happened to have not seen it there. Right. And so you could say that it was bolted correctly in a way. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, based on those that information there, she was, she was 10, she said it was 10 feet above that anchor probably mm. is when she fell, which again would have resulted in a 20 foot slide down a slab, which probably would have hurt a lot mm. and maybe you know, resulted in some sort of necessary rescue, but not as fucked up as she was. Right. So, you know, there's again, and, and these kind of like fireside chats, they, they love to drill down on these fills, these little sticking points. And that's honestly one of them. Like yeah. the, 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 as it is, had she done it correctly, it was reasonably bolted. Right. And I think someone who's done it probably would say that, like, yeah, you clip the bolt and then you do a hard move and then it's 40 feet of nothing to get to the anchor. Like, it's spooky, but you ain't going to fall. You know what I mean? So it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I definitely would argue against it. And I think I still fall on that at this point um, because of those circumstances. Um, I still probably fall on the leave it alone yeah, it, it, it's it's sad and tragic and and you know to be honest with you if she's a climber and her partner is a climber they may feel the same way is that like yeah I, I fucked up and found out kind right. of thing right so but you know one thing you said in there that my thinking is has changed on is that is that idea that like i had this amazing experience on it and for some reason that i need to make sure everybody else has that potential experience i find that to be a in in my older age like a strange thing to stand mm. on like you had your experience on it and it, and nobody's going to have the same experience as you did anyway and so that's why i'm like i don't really care mm-hmm. afterwards and you know i know that like all these aid routes that i did on el cap and had my experiences i know they've all changed They've all sprouted extra bolts and extra hook moves and things. You know, that's just the way they do. And it doesn't, I'm not standing here like, that's a total tragedy because you don't get to have the same experience I had. It's like, you're not going to have the same experience I had anyway because you're not me. This kind of touches into a conversation we had off the record the other night. I won't name names, but um, we kind of heard this story about a person who got fucked up on a climb and then the first ascension is feeling so bad about it. Like the, this person pulled off a flake or something like that. Wasn't cleaned necessarily the right way or bolted it by choss. And so this, the first ascensionist erased the route, like took the bolts out of the wall because as a way to kind of deal with, you know, a fatality that happened on this, on this climb of theirs. 
And so that's like another interesting piece of the puzzle. It's not relevant to Snake Dyke, but um, yeah, I mean, so this. So I think the relevant or the interesting thing is that this person, because they had put the root up, felt responsible mm-hmm. for what had happened, or right. at least not hundred percent, but but felt they had this part in it, right? And and I don't think objectively they screwed up in any way um, because once again the person was off route yeah was not necessarily on their route so you know we can't collectively point to this thing and say like oh your anchor failed that you put in right. or something like we could actually be like that was your you're bad because you put shitty bolts in but he still felt this way and so yeah. he went ahead and did something about it and it's i think the interesting thing is is that we don't you know, I don't know who put Snake Dyke up. It was like the golden <laughs> age, right? The Royal Robins. We should look that up. But yeah. th- those people, I don't think it's ever been a culture of climbing where they should feel responsible. But in some ways, you know, if we go into this world of ownership, if we go in this world of you put the bolts in, you put the root up, so now we can never change it, then you know, there's this ownership thing that kind of comes into play. Like you now own this thing, even if you stop climbing and you don't care, we, we sit there and like worry about whether you do, but you're absolutely not responsible for it in any way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting. And I've, I've, I've never looked at it like that where you're responsible for the accidents that happen. But I've also often wondered, like, aren't you then responsible to go and like replace your shitty hardware 30 years later? Yeah. If you own this route. Right. You know, like it, it kind of like stands to reason that if you don't want anyone else to do it, then you better, you know, in your 70s or 80s, go up there and fucking put some new bolts in or whatever it happens to be. And I've never, you know, I've never put up a route where there was an accident. So I don't know how it would feel. Well, I mean, I think that part of this is our, this like human instinct to want to like, do to feel like we have control over every situation and Mm -hmm. we just don't i mean accidents happen they just happen and especially in a sport like climbing they can be really bad and you obviously try to mitigate them as a first ascensionist or as a climber yourself but they just happen and that's just part of the sport and so certainly this woman's life would be different if snake dyke had been you know, bolted in as a, an El Potrero style sport climb, you know, but that's not what it was. And she also knew that's not what it was. And it was, it's a different route, you know? And so there's anytime there's like any kind of thing that makes us feel like we're out of control, we need to like try to control it more, come up with solutions that try to control it more. But I don't know if we can, and I, I don't know if that's like too cynical or fatalistic to, to come to that conclusion, but that kind of just seems to be the inevitable nature of things is that no matter what you do, there's going to be something that goes wrong. And, um, yeah, I don't know. What do you make of that? Am I, am I going into a dark place right now? Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. I think that's the, the, the premise that you put out at the beginning of the show about how part of the draw is these things, these, these, uncontrolled or are, are, are these tests i mean we like climbing because it's a test 
and you know certain places and certain things test us in different ways and if if it was just all indoor climbing we wouldn't like it i mean we've said that publicly like that's not that's not our thing so yeah and, and i just also like the back to like the the backer urian you know uh defense or whatever you want to call it <laughs> um you know i i could have we could have the same conversation about someone who was climbing on a sport climb that was poorly bolted or bolted in the wrong way and you know had a ledge fall or had you know a bad fourth clip that meant you were going to hit the ground or third clip or, and, and i would have a completely different attitude right. towards it and that's the, the thing and that's why i joke about the backer urine is it's it's you know we we don't need a black and white there's circuit there's there's certain things about the snake dike that kind of protect it but that the same arguments don't apply to you know the third 12b on the left on some sport climbing wall mm -hmm. and in my opinion if everybody knows a sport climb has a terrible and dangerous clip on it it should be fucking changed right just not no arguments at all yeah because it's a different game i mean I, this is what i like about these conversations is that i find myself finding so many circumstantial reasons to change my intuitions and opinions. Mm -hmm. And there's no like one right way to do it. And there's so many arguments that you can be made about the value of snake dike. It's location on like one of the coolest formations in the world. Right. It's kind of adventurous nature. It's uh history and so forth and so on. And, um, yeah, I mean, like, the more we talk, I find myself coming into that. I hope it's not, like, this, like, you know, belligerent 20-year-old position, but, like, I'm kind of defensive of the idea of that one accident necess necessitates that we need to put up more guardrails in order to prevent that from happening in the future. Um, but But it's not just a reflexive thing. It's because I feel like we're coming to understanding that there's just nuance there and this is a different route from the random sport route with the third bolt that's like way off in the middle of nowhere and it just needs to be moved like 10 feet to the left in order to make it more fun i don't know do you do you agree with that yeah and i was just thinking too about it's weird because we almost want we want enough variables that people can fuck up and therefore it's like we want these accidents to happen to almost confirm that it's, and I'm, I'm not like, I'm trying to say this in a philosophical way, but, but do you know what I mean? Like wanting the risk in there means that we're going okay. to have accidents. We're okay with the, the, the occasional accident. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's like a weird as a, as a father and as a, as an adult and as an older sort of climber that's seen it all and, and, and watched the tragedies go down it's a it's a weird dichotomy it's a weird tension to when you think about it it's easy to be like oh yeah we love the risk in climbing it's what's thrilling about it but then you're like yeah but we don't love it when this poor woman yeah but the counterfactual know. is that she could have had the best day of her life you know that day right. and and then no one would have known any different we wouldn't be talking about this and right and the day before a party did and the day she could after have seen, a party did yeah, yeah she could have seen the anchor she could have clipped it she could have gotten mm -hmm. to the summit it could have been the best climbing day of her life and um and she'd go on to be you know she would have survived this 
you know, this experience that she maybe wasn't quite ready for, like all of us have done and who are more fortunate than her and have gotten away with, you know, way worse. And, um, we're just happened to be lucky to have not taken that 80 foot ride on the slab. And that happens all the time, every day in climbing that happens. Well, and then you tell that story for the rest of your life, how you almost did. Yeah. You know, like, oh, then I had to fucking down climb and it was fucking... It was so scared. It was so scared. Yeah. And you, you, yeah, and you high five and you tell the story over and over and over again. So I guess that's what I'm getting at is this weird tension between the two because it goes from but like heroic it. story to like tragic, sad story in a But you get of, it because you have yeah. so many experiences mm-hmm. where you've, you know that. And right. it, you, you do have to be okay with the, the, um, with this situation. I mean, like, you just have to be because that's part of it. You're hypocritical otherwise if you can't say that this is part of climbing. Right. And, yeah. But but you have to say that, and I hope we're doing that in this conversation with at least some real respect for sympathy for those who who don't, like, get lucky, like all of us who have led, like, healthy climbing lives do. Yeah, because it's sometimes it's just luck. Seb Bois is a sport climber from France who is both establishing and repeating the world's hardest rock climbs. He recently completed Adam Andres Change, a 515C in Norway. And earlier this year, Seb did the first ascent of DNA, a 515 in the Verdun. Yeah, it's funny. We we tried to uh, connect with you right after you sent DNA earlier this year, but then we kind of missed each other. And since then, you've you've just gone on and done many, many more hard routes. So it's been kind of fortuitous that we're talking to you now um, after the last three months of of just successes that you've had, a string of successes where it seems like you're kind of in the best shape of your life and climbing really well. Um, and it all started with uh, DNA which um, you proposed a, a 9C rating for. So why don't we start there and you can just tell us about the process of climbing DNA. Give us the, the background on, on how that route came into your life and, and uh, how, how long it took you to actually get it done. I think success is not meaning you are in the best shape of your life. It's maybe a bit of everything coming on the same time. Because sometimes you are in a really good shape and you have not the good condition, you have not the good spirit. To send a, such a hard route, you need like everything. And sometimes I was like in a super good shape and condition were not here. And sometimes I was like just in a good shape but not feeling confident in myself. And sometimes like just no partners and you have like just to organize another trip and. You have like just to find everything <laughs> to send such a hard route. So I think success is bringing more success and fail, sometimes bringing some uh, frustration and some more fail. But definitely it doesn't mean you are not good <laughs> or not in a good shape at least. So for DNA, I bolted it in 2019, straight after sending La Rage d'Adam, um, another hard route in Verdun Gorge. In 2019, it was the French hardest route, La Rage d'Adam. 
And I was like just searching for another challenge, another hard route. And I started bolting this one. And it was quite uncertain. I, I didn't know if it would be possible or if it was enough old. So I had started trying it end of the season of 2019. And it felt super hard and I was like not able to, to link all the section. And I was like, ah, maybe it's possible, but <laughs> really far away. I will maybe check it next season again to see. So in 2020, and because also of the COVID situation, it was cool to stay in France and just work on such a hard and beautiful project. It was like actually the perfect project, uh, not that far from home, really beautiful in a beautiful place and like high difficulty. I mean, it was like something I never tried. Like this difficulty was like way, way above like the other route I did. So in 2020, I, I started like trying it seriously, but I think I tried it maybe four months or something like that. And end of the season, I was like doing the the links, but um, it was like really far away because the problem on DNA is like to arrive in a fresh on the last crux and there is like two, three crux before. Yeah, this is a big problem, like find the perfect flow on the route and just be fresh uh, when you arrive on the last main crux. And I always arrived really tired and no chance at all. But it was like a good project for 2021. And it was definitely on my on my mind. So 2021, I just checked really bibliography in Seuss. And I said, oh, I, this one looks, I can try it too. So I was trying both like bibliography and DNA, but it, DNA was more in my heart. And I was like, oh, I bolted this route. I tried so much and I would like to, to finish it. And on the same time, bibliography went really well. And I was like, oh, I'm close also to do bibliography. And then I was like trying both. Today's on bibliography, today's on DNA. And then uh, I fell three times on the top of bibliography. And I was like, I'm super close. I, I need to, to choose something because I, I fell also quite close on DNA. End of October, I say, oh, I have to choose because too painful to have two big projects in your head. <laughs> I, I, I need like one and then another one. Like working the section was really good because you are like just changing the mind and just seeing other things. But when you are, when you want to finish the, the process, yeah, you have to be 100% on, on, on it. So I definitely uh, had to choose uh, one of them. I, I chose DNA because like it was the most important one for me. So I tried it seriously until yeah middle of December, just before Christmas. And I was like really close. End of November, start of Christmas. I was like, wow, falling like just straight after the main crux, like on little mistakes. And yeah, maybe a bit of endurance. It was really hard condition. Like, I don't know, in like 11, less 11 degrees Celsius. Was a super cold on the morning, and then like the wind, it was super cold. It was like one try, like fire, one try, and then go home. <laughs> it was it was a bit crazy actually, and I was a bit too obsessed, I think, and I was like forcing the process. It was too much, I think, and I had like a little burnout, I think, in two thousand twenty-two, like January, February. I was 
investing so much and not finishing the process and being so close actually. So I said, okay, now I just need to do other things and train for the upcoming spring. And I did like easier route, like nine days or, and just train, training on the gym. And I was like kind of ready for the April, 2022. And I climbed on the route like around 12 days and then like make a stop because I was super close to, and then I think, oh, I don't want like just to burn my mind and just not be able to do it this season. So I, I, I decided to take one week and then like coming back to the route. And then it was a good opportunity, like a good one with the perfect condition, good mindset. I think like I, I took care of my, my mindset during like January, February and March. It was quite important just to feel good and okay, relax. And I was like, stress to to in the route like yeah at, at the end success and fail were too important on the process i think it's quite important to have success before the main project not the training on nine years and saying yeah i did this route oh i did this route and oh, i'm able to do route hard route and then going on the process and don't think about success or fail and just think about climbing hard and do the right thing at the right time and be able to to take the opportunity of any chance because sometimes sometimes when you are stressed you are too stressed to see the opportunity coming to you 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 are not enough relaxed to enjoy and just be able to to let the body go to control you want to to control too much the thing so um it it's interesting because you you know you're climbing at this level where it's it's you and just a few people, you know, and, and I, I was thinking about how you were, you mentioned spirit and all these other things that have to go into, to making you ready or, or making you see the opportunity to succeed or, um, but who, you know, in your life do you sort of surround yourself with and, and maybe draw from experience again, since you're in such this rarefied place, this place that only a few people have ever really found themselves. So what is your you know the the community you surround yourself look like and and what do you draw who do you draw from and and uh what do you get out of you know the people that you surround yourself with and are, are climbing with to help help keep that mindset um in the right place and have the experience to understand what you're doing yeah i think i think it's it's a good question because i have like a different parkour from other climbers when i started climbing around the 11 12 years old adam was doing his first nine so he was like far away really far away and i had to understand a lot before coming on to this level and actually i think adam chris and other other strong climber are quite big inspiration because they basically have more experience than me and they are like focusing on many many things like competing uh, big walls, bouldering, like sport climbing. And it's actually inspiring to see like people doing everything. Everyone has something special, like his qualities and his weakness too. So it's, um, it's fun to see like the, the qualities of everyone and the weakness of everyone. And I think my qualities in my head. Not in my body, definitely. 
I mean, for sure, my parents, my mother is, was climbing a lot with me. Um, was bullying me a lot actually <laughs> in DNA during the, the cold winter days. And also my girlfriend for sure. And I think your personal life is really influencing your climbing. Definitely. Um, maybe not on the training part, maybe not on the on-site part, but on projecting hard during your many seasons. It's like the most important to be like stable and calm. It's like just believing on, on what you are doing and entering it is the most important, I think, for me. Because like if you are just wrong in your head, like your mi mindset is bad and you are like just not confident and and stress in your life because of some situation, personal situation is like a bit devastating and you are like believing less on the success and less on, on, on your project. It's for everything the same, like uh, your job, your study, but it, it happened also in hard climbing. So I'm lucky enough to have like people around me and I think yeah, my girlfriend, my mother are like just climbing with me and it's quite cool. And also all my friends for sure okay, sharing the so uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about was just this topic of grades, because this is yeah. um, an interesting topic on a few different levels. You know, we're, I guess I'm from the Chris Sharma generation. And at that time when, you know, Chris was really developing some of the harder roots and he, he did biography and so forth, he was kind of reluctant to um, attach grades to these roots. Um, and, you know, in America and Tommy Caldwell, when he did Flex Luther, I don't think he officially graded that. And it was only this last year that we realized it might be as hard as a 9B, mm. you know, but you're of a generation that has been much more willing to propose your thoughts about difficulty and to attach, uh, to just throw ratings out there and see, see what sticks. And, you know, some routes are, are getting upgraded or downgraded and um, there's just a more vibrant conversation among yourself and, you know, Alex Magos and Adam Andra and, um, uh, you know, a bunch of other people. So I'd just love to hear your thoughts about why you think that kind of change in mentality has taken place in climbing, why people are much more able to talk about grades. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? What are your feelings about the conversation itself regarding grades at this high level? I think grades are made by the conversation. There is not one way to do roots. If you're small, if you're tall, if you're like a bulldog climber, endurance climber, you will find maybe some nibble, some trick to rest. And all the advices from all the climbers making the grade, it's actually super important, I think, to, to speak about the grade and just don't be sad about it. Just say what you are thinking and why. You need to say why, not only what. Um, and just com some comparison with other routes. You can use the time conception just to say, oh, I spent one week on this one and one month on this one. And just say, oh, comparing to to this route or this route, I think this. Or, or maybe I didn't find the best beta. Or if we want a, like a professional sport and also amateur sport, it's like, if we want a sport, we have just to be clear on what we are doing. If it's just like a lobby or just a hobby, it's it's okay. You can climb in top rope. You can climb using the quick draws. You can climb everything. But if you want some grade and some like level indication, you need just to be honest and clear. I think just to be honest is okay. Like 
if you are doing a root first ascending without nipad and now, now you are using nipad, it's like, just say it and say it's easier because I think it's the same grade, but it changed not that much. And they know it changed. We should like downgrade the root with the nipad. I think be honest is the most important. <laughs> and it's sometimes hard when you invest so much in a project and say, oh, maybe it's not that hard because of the nipad or because I found a new beta or because... Yeah, sometimes it's hard to be athlete and judge in the same time. So do you think that's we, an important part of your role as a you know as a professional climber is to be able to offer that or do you do you yeah, think that I think it's important to explain that there is no no big deal just say what you think and then also speak with other like peacefully <laughs> because we are just like uh, sometimes we are thinking oh this route is maybe harder than the great proposed and just tell it tell it and why also the why is really important because if you are just telling oh it's harder but you are not telling why it's a bit weird and also in the downgrade the same why i am downgrading this route you need to say because i think it's easier than this one or this one or i don't know if this english word exists like homogen homogen when something is you know like grade uh should be the same on the planet, like if you are climbing United States in France or somewhere, if you are, if you have a 80 grade or a 15 A grade, you should have the same in Spain. You should have the same everywhere. But it's hard actually. It's hard because it depends on the localization of the people climbing there, of the experience of the people climbing there. So you should just, I think, firstly compare the grade on the crag, then on the area. And then on the country, and then like on the continent, it's it's quite hard to have everywhere the same. Basically, we know like all the school in France where you can find A, B plus really hard, and it should be A, C plus in Spain in some new crag. We we know that we know that if you change crag from old school crag to new school crag, it, it can change the style, it can change the, the difficulty, but at least. We have to try to find a good calibration of the grade. That's maybe a great segue into another thing I wanted to talk about, which was your vintage rock tour videos series that you put out a few years ago. I really enjoyed those, and I just kind of want to hear your motivation for creating those. Uh, Many things, but firstly, the motivation to do this tour was like just to meet the people of the of the times like uh, speak with them and learn the history actually and also repeat the historical roots like first 80 first 8b first 7c first 78 just to have like an idea of what is the first root of the grade in france and it was like super cool because sometimes it was different from other 7a or other 7b it was like um, like well, if this is seven B, it's quite <laughs> different from the the other ones I know. <laughs> and it was important to see how climbing evolved because actually I know how climbing is in the high level and the like famous area, but when you climb on all the school area, really tricky, really slabby. It's like Wow, it's 
something else, something I never learned. For example, like climbing slab, AB slab or something. It's like, wow, you have just to take the time to think. You need not your muscle, <laughs> actually. You need your, so something else. So just understand the grade because first going the route is really hard. And then when you understand the style, the, the way to climb it, it's like, okay, now I feel it's AB. <laughs> So yeah, I learned many things like where climbing is coming. It's not coming from the overhanging. So that's why maybe it took so much time to have like natural roots on overhangs. They were like putting Sika, drilling some holes. It was like, when you see climbing from now, it's like, oh, desperating. But when you see like from before, they were just climbing on slabs. So going in this huge overhang seems impossible. And you have to just think about it. It was the new, new, new stuff, and they hadn't the, the vision of like natural line and a beautiful line. They were just touching up the difficulty at, at some point, and also about like re- relationship between climber. It was like really a little war be- before, like be- before English and French, before North of French and South of France. It was like not so so much nice between the climbers and now it's really nice i think everyone is is nice with everyone we we are not like uh, keeping a rook for us if there is a project almost everyone is able to try it or and before it was like whoa no it's my project no i don't want to try it i want to do it first and it happens sometimes always but i think it's more and more peaceful for example like just in norway adam was talking to me about uh, Nordic Marathon, like the 130 meters route on this, on this huge overhang. It was like super cool experience, but it just, hey, give me the project. It was super cool. And he was happy about that. And I, I did the same in France. I was like just putting the first French 9B and say, Adam, it's for you. Just do it, try it, and try to do it. At least with Adam and the, the, the guys I know. And I think the others are the same. It's like, not like keeping a project, but... Uh, yeah, it's understandable to keep a project because if you are bolting it, training it during several years and you are close to do it, and then someone else comes and do it, it's like buttons. At the same time, it's a game. I think it's part of the game, just be able to share. I'm climbing more in cooperation with other climbers and competition. That's why I'm not doing competition. When you were, um, you know, sort of digging into the past and, and learning all these things, I'm, you know, a sort of student of climbing history um, and, you know, the French climbing history is so rich and sport climbing was essentially invented there. And, you know, that all looms in, in the history of world climbing. But as you dug back into these old roots, you know, what about the older French climbers? Who who did you sort of discover that in, that maybe inspired you to to look more into their life, or or even who did you end up meeting that you thought, oh, this is another another good part of this project? Um, I mean, obviously, yeah. Patrick, you know, Alanger <laughs> yeah. was such a big big part of all of that you're talking about him, and and unfortunately has passed away. So, but yeah, what kind of inspiration did you get from some of these figures in the past? Different, there are different person, and everyone is unique in, mm-hmm. in his way. Like for example, Le Menestrel, Antoine Le Menestrel. I met Antoine. I, I already met Mark, but uh, we did like um, an episode with Antoine in Bux, and it was like kind of 
artist. <laughs> it's an artist, basically. And it's, it was inspiring to see his climbing vision, like just find the most beautiful and the hardest line possible. It was like his vision. He was like trying to do also the most impressive movement on the route, like just La Rose the Vampire. He wanted to do, he, it was manufactured, but he wanted to do something aesthetical. And actually, he, he has like a climbing dancing company on the street. He's doing like yeah, shows on the street. And he has a different vision like from JB Tribu. It was different. JB wanted to do performance. I don't know if he was caring too much about aesthetic. And also Fred Ruling was uh, way different from them. It was like searching the hardest one. And uh, it was more about movement, big movement, dino. He, wa he wanted to do his thing like not the hardest one only, but the, the more gymnical one. He wanted like he was mm, manufacturing the roots. At the time, it was not that bad, but... Where, where do you fall on, on that spectrum that you just uh, just outlined there? I mean, like, obviously, the perfect route is the one that's the most beautiful, the hardest, and, you know, the longest, let's say. You know, but uh, it just doesn't always work out that way, and it's hard to find routes that way. And so but do you have a preference, like, if you would had to choose difficulty or beauty, what would it be? Are you more drawn to, like, these big... It's big, like, beautiful lines or just really, really hard projects that are kind of in dingy caves that, you know, aren't the most aesthetic. Yeah, but, you know, when you are doing a route, after it's over, you are never going back on it. So if it's too easy, it's beautiful, you are enjoying it, but you will never come back. So if your big project is beautiful, you are so happy to come back on it. So that's the game, fine the thing inspiring you and also resisting you. But like, uh, if I have to choose between, uh, I don't know, a really hard 90 and not that beautiful and a beautiful 9B+, plus, I will choose definitely the beautiful 9B+. Plus. <laughs> if it's your question. <laughs> yeah, that that's exactly my question. The Ramaral is, is uh, one of those crags that seems to have both beauty and difficulty everywhere. What's Are there future projects there that you're working on? Are there more opportunities for 9C plus or 10A? Like what, what does the future look like for, for those kinds of grades? There's, um, I think, a few more lines to bolt. It will be really, really hard. And I don't know if it's possible yet. But actually, I wanted to change a little bit from Ramirol because after three seasons, like I think 2021, one almost six months, and 2024, five months, I was like, okay, now I need maybe to go maybe in United States, <laughs> maybe other in other place, you know. It was like super cool and super important to me to to have like such a big project in France. But actually, maybe it's it's maybe actually time to go somewhere else and try some some routes from other people also it seems sort of oddly fortunate within you know the covid situation for you to have that there having some some sort of future project this thing that really inspired you um it seemed pretty lucky in that sense to have that opportunity to be right there and while everybody else was you know getting sent back home out of the from you know we just talked to jonathan segris he basically got 
you know, run out of Italy back home, his whole trip ended and you just, you know, could buckle down and yeah. as we say here and like have this amazing project. It seemed pretty fortunate. Um, did you kind of like realize that at the time? Yeah, we realized definitely because I also did another one in Pixanlu, just 20 minutes from my house. Like it was 9B, 9B plus, maybe 9B plus, let's see what other thing, but it's definitely a chance to live on south of France. We are works mm. everywhere, and it's, it's it's why I think I am climbing. I I will not climb if there will only be indoor climbing. I want to be outdoor climbing is the best combination for me. But it's super important to go inside to train, to meet friends, to have fun times. But the goal is outdoor, and and the spirit is outdoor. It's it's why I'm climbing because I am living in such beautiful place for this. I just, I don't know if I would climb if I will like, live in Russia or or basically in the north of Norway or some somewhere that you can't you know you have just to do gym and and go and travel because it was because of this this situation I am climbing to this level is it's because I am living so so close to the project to the crags to the like the the center of climbing history that I am like in. <laughs> if not, I don't know if I will be enough motivated to do only indoor climbing to prepare competitions or just to prepare the trips in six months. Or I don't know because now it's easy for sure. If you are a professional climber and living in Russia or you have just to travel, but when you are young and you are going to school. It was like just a good escape for me to go outdoor on the rock, on the crags with friends. It was like just the perfect situation. And I don't know actually if I would do the same, like if it was not possible to do this in my childhood. What percentage of your time is spent um, in the gym versus climbing outside? It's really depending on the period. If I am preparing a trip or if, if I am traveling somewhere, it, it depends. But basically, at home, if I am preparing something, uh, I am climbing outdoor during the day and training inside during the evening. And basically doing three sessions in a day, crag session with a little project, and then um, two sessions on, on the gym, like basically maybe one boulder session and one like some goodage and hangboard session or like musculation session and that... Um, lead climbing session. I'm doing a lot actually when I am at home to prepare myself. And I am keeping the rock contact to have always a good motivation. It's why I am climbing. And training is cool, but not <laughs> as cool as uh, the rock climbing for me. It's cool to hear that you appreciate where you live. And, you know, because I've been climbing for 30 years and the south of France, the Verdun, Seyuse, uh, all these places have graced, the, you know, the covers of magazines since I started climbing and were always like the centerpiece of climbing dreams, you know, <laughs> for people worldwide. They, they really were. I mean, the, the images from the Verdun, and I've been fortunate enough to climb there several times. And, you know, that just like fueled so many climbers around the world, these images just from right where you live. And, and I think sometimes it's hard for people to appreciate that when they do, you know, live in a place that, you yeah. know, they go to the same crag for months at an end and 
they just start to think of it as you know going to work or something while the rest but, of us dream of being there so <laughs> it's nice to hear that you you understand the legacy of that place and, yeah, and yeah. how it's really just fueled the dreams of climbers for you know for the last 50 years really but it was it was actually hard to understand that i started climbing in verdun gorge and then I started traveling for climbing and I was like saying, oh, climbing, it's so, so exciting. And okay, let's go. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't remember some Spain crags. And I was like, but it's small. <laughs> <laughs> Why it's so it looks small? crumbly. The rock looks crumbly. Like, <laughs> isn't that just going to all break wow. in our hands? And I was like, not so much. <laughs> I was like, well, maybe it was not a good crack. And the next travel, I was like, okay, come on. I was like, oh, <laughs> no, it's not that good. <laughs> I was like, okay. And then after many travels, I like, oh, we are really lucky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it, when it's your normality, you are just thinking everything is the same everywhere. And you are, ah, no, finally, no. <laughs> Well, speaking of that um, and being disappointed, you kind of hinted that you might be coming to the United States at some point. <laughs> yeah. Um, what uh, What do you have your eyes set on over here? What are you thinking that, where do you want to go? What do you want to try? Um, I would like to try Jambolov. Yeah, from Chris Chama. I think it was big inspiration when I was young. I was like, yeah, this this line was make me dreaming. Yeah, I'm really psyched to, to try this one, and I think it's my kind of route. And there is also a direct to this route. Chris Chama told me there is like possibility to make it harder. Um, yeah, so firstly, maybe try to do Jambolov and then maybe work on the direct. I don't know, Chris was saying maybe 9B plus, maybe more. So let's see what is it, <laughs> actually. And maybe do also, if we have extra time, do other routes like, I don't know, the historical ones. Uh, just do it to bolt or not to be. Uh, first objective is like Jambolov and then let's see how, how to play the, the travel. Yeah, the, if you, when you're in Salt Lake, you should definitely check out the Hell Cave. It's, um, yeah. Of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of got this reputation of being short and kind of not aesthetic and... Um, but of course, there's hard routes there. Uh, it's not the Verdant Gorge of the <laughs> United States. <laughs> is, that, is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, no, it's not. Or what? What would you say is sort of unique um, or special? Do you think as you've traveled the world and and dipped into all kinds of climbing cultures? You know, you talk about going to Spain um, and and uh, traveling to Norway and and meeting climbers from all different climbing cultures. What do you think is special? when you've thought about the history and, and you growing up in it, what's special about the French climbing scene you think that makes it unique um, or, or that you find, you know, is, is something that you take pride in as far as the, the scene that you've surrounded yourself with? If you told me about uh, general things, I would say cheese and bread. <laughs> but for, <laughs> for climbing, let, let me think to it. <laughs> Don't forget the sausage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I think it's maybe the spirit. Like there are so many climbers in France, and so many strong climbers in France, and no one is saying nothing. Like really, they are really strong, and just it's normal. And when you travel, you are not you are not seeing this kind of legacy of climbing. Just ninety many people are climbing ninety in France. You don't about them like 
really strong. And when I am usually going to the gym, I always find someone to climb with me and even someone to beat me at the gym. I was like, wow. <laughs> it's like really big culture. And I think, I don't find the English word, but like when you are not telling too much about yourself, strong climbers and just happy to be outside. Patreon bonus episode for Rope Guns Only. We take you on a journey of sight and sound, of pin scars and off-widths, of slander and rigid definitions as we tackle the mystery of the Salathay's legendary Pitch 19. Once heralded as perhaps the crux of the greatest free climb in the world, Pitch 19 then suddenly disappeared from the record, being sucked into the seething void of obscurity that is the twilight zone of revisionist history. Become a rope gun today at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and join us on a dangerous and exciting search for Pitch 19. Was it murdered by a German prince? Was it just conveniently shunned like a difficult in-law? Or is Pitch 19 poised for its harrowing revenge? Join us at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to support the runout and these ridiculous promos. Today's final bit comes from a Quebec-based band, Rebel. Their drummer, Joey Kane, is a sport climber who first discovered climbing during the pandemic and has been hooked ever since. You can find out all about Rebel at rebelmusic.com or at rebelmusic on Instagram. This one's called Head on Fire.
You've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Caloose, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, no, no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. (laughs) If you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. No, pot.com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money.